This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Amen. Well, I took some time before this service to go out and greet those that were coming uh, in the pavilion outside. There was a large number of people there, so thankful that they're being able to watch with us this morning. And all of us together, hopefully, being able to receive something good from the Lord. We'll take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 38. Psalm 38. If you're new to Prince, let me just say that on a week-to-week basis, you're going to need one of these, okay? Uh, This is what we do every single Sunday morning, although I am sure that at some point in your life, you need nine principles for a more abundant life. That's not what you're gonna get here. We believe that right here is everything you need for life and godliness in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So this is what we do. And I have nothing good to say to you apart from that which is found in here. So I'm gonna walk through text every Sunday morning. I know many college students are are new this morning. This is your first time. I just want you to know you need one of these and uh, because we're gonna walk uh, through it every single Sunday morning. Psalm 38, I'm excited about this as we continue to walk through the Psalms. One of the reasons I like to walk through books of the Bible, as a general rule, there are times in which we'll do something a little bit different, is because I can't imagine a situation in which I would ever choose to preach Psalm 38. I've never preached a sermon on Psalm 38. I've never heard a sermon on Psalm 38. And I opened it up this week and started studying on Tuesday morning. I got a text message from my mother saying, I just read Psalm 38. This is really hard. And I said, yes, it is. Uh, But I am confident at this point this morning that God has some really good things to say to us. And I'm really excited. I think the timing's right. And I pray that you'll be ready to hear what God says. It was in 1665 in which what is now referred to as the Great Plague swept through the city of London. Within 18 months, listen to this, a fourth of every person in London had died. The graveyards were so overfilled that the city sent out what they called death trucks that would pull up to neighborhoods with a big truck bed behind them and they would simply yell out from house to house, bring out your dead, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. The families would then bring out their dead members, they would put them in a truck and they would take them and bury them in a mass grave. The entire city was in absolute chaos as the virus just swept throughout the city. But it was in London at that time in which Ralph Vinnan, a pastor, not only known for his faithful gospel preaching but also known for his love and care for the poor, Someone who often blended those two things in his preaching would preach the Bible, but would often make sure people understood that we needed to care for those who are less fortunate. Had just before the plague hit, almost finished a book. But because of the plague, he decided not to publish that book. And then three years after the plague was done, he then decided to publish it, but to change the title. The book was 250 pages on the seriousness of sin. He showed in the first section of that book that sin is contrary to the nature of God, and he showed in the second part of that book that sin is also contrary to how God created mankind, that we're not only hurting God, that we hurt ourselves when we sin, that it is always worse for us. When the book was finally published, he called it the plague of plagues. He wanted to make the point that no matter what plague comes our way, there is nothing that has ever affected humanity with a greater plague than the plague of sin itself. And in that book, he wrote these words. He said, sin is worse than affliction 
It is worse than death, worse than the devil, and worse than hell. Affliction is not so afflictive, and death is not so deadly, and the devil is not so devilish, and hell is not so hellish as sin is. The four evils I have just named are truly terrible. And from all of them, everyone is ready to say, good Lord, deliver us. Yet none of these, nor all of them together, are as bad as sin. As I read through that book again this week, I kept thinking, I can't imagine a message more contrary to our culture than that one right there. I begin to think about all the problems around us today and all the solutions that have been given us when at the same time, the greatest problem seems to be talked about very little, even in the church. And if we don't understand that the greatest problem is sin, we will never understand that the greatest solution is a savior. Sin is our problem and a savior is our only solution. So in the midst of all of the other things going on around us, let's make sure one thing is very clear. The plague of plagues is sin. And the only solution is Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. And that's exactly what Vinning wants us to understand. He wants us to understand the seriousness of sin. And in a day in which it seems that this is not super clear for most churches, nor is it understood in the context in which we live, Psalm 38 becomes extremely important for us. Because it does remind us that the great plague of all plagues The seriousness of everything that we face is sin itself. Now, Psalm 38 is about the discipline of the Lord. Look at verse one. It says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. If you mark in your Bibles that word discipline would be a good word to underline or to circle. Uh, The entire chapter is about the discipline of the Lord. Now, we rarely hear about the discipline of the Lord. I don't remember the last time I heard a sermon on the discipline of the Lord. So before we jump into Psalm 38, I wanna give us a little bit of foundation on which to build about God's discipline. When the Bible talks about the discipline of the Lord, there are two kinds of discipline, instructive and corrective. I'd encourage you to write that down. There is the instructive discipline of the Lord and the corrective discipline of the Lord. Let's talk about the instructive discipline for a moment. The instructive discipline refers to the way in which the Lord applies pressure on us, changes our circumstances, leads us in certain paths in order to conform us into his image. The Lord who has called us to not only believe the facts of the gospel, but has called us to enter into the life of the gospel, knows that the only way to resurrection power is the pathway of suffering. I don't know how we've forgotten that. And so it is the way in which God makes us and molds us and conforms us into Christ's image is that we experience throughout our lives the same suffering that Jesus did. And this is instructive. The word disciple and the word discipline are from the same root because part of what happens when we choose to be a disciple, our mission here is to lead people to trust and follow Jesus, that's being a disciple is that we are then submitting ourselves to the authority of a teacher to which we say, we believe you know best, so do whatever you have to do in my life to make me the person you want me to be. We enter in to this instructive discipline of the Lord. There's a couple examples I can think of. John 15 is maybe one of the best. John 15 talks about the vine and the branches. And it says there are some branches that don't bear any fruit, so they're cut off and burned. But there are some branches that bear fruit And the Lord prunes them so that they may bear more fruit. Now, that pruning process is difficult. It's painful. It's God cutting things away. 
And oftentimes in our lives, we'll have a moment of suffering or a moment of difficulty or a moment of tension in our lives and we'll wonder what is happening and we might even think for a minute that the Lord is against us when in reality, it may very be that the reason you're experiencing that is because you're been, you've been bearing good fruit and God wants you to bear more fruit. So that moment of, of pain or suffering or difficulty is actually the Lord saying, you're doing well, I just want to continue to make you into my image. And so he prunes us. It is instructive. But maybe the best text for this that is the most helpful for us is in Hebrews chapter 12. And I would ask you to, to turn there for just a minute because I'm going to read these verses. And I want you to see them in Hebrews 12 verses 7 through 11. This is the instructive discipline of the Lord. Now the context is the people of God are suffering at the hands of unjust people meaning that there's all this persecution happening and the author of Hebrews is trying to put that in context and help them to understand why this is happening to them. Because just like all of us, when suffering happens, we wonder why. He says this, verse seven, Hebrews 12. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then listen, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, the Lord, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There's a lot of things to say there. The first is that if you do not experience the discipline of the Lord, then you are an illegitimate child and not a son. That the way in which we know that we're the people of God is that we experience his discipline. We experience his navigating, instructing in our lives in order to make us who we wanna be. So, so if you have been taught that anytime there's some pressure or there's some suffering or some difficulty that's contrary to the way of Christ, the opposite is actually true. That is the way of Christ. And Hebrews 12 says that God is treating you as a son. He is applying that kind of discipline for your good. And for those who are trained by it, those who receive it and don't despise it, it produces the fruit of righteousness. And remember again the context, they're suffering at the hands of evil men, just like Jesus is in Hebrews 12, 2. And even the suffering that's coming externally, the author of Hebrews wants us to understand, is a part of the instruction of the Lord. The Lord is in that. The Lord is behind that. The Lord is the one who is letting that happen in order that you might be like him. This is the instructive discipline of the Lord. God molding us into his image, pruning us that we bear more, may bear more fruit. But there's also the corrective discipline of the Lord. This means, this is the kind of discipline that comes to us because of our continued sin, even as a believer. Now there's many places we could look at this. First Peter has about three cases of this, but chapter four, uh, Peter says, listen, some of you are suffering because of righteousness. You're suffering because you're standing for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you choose to stand with the Lord, you're gonna suffer. But be careful that you don't suffer because of your unrighteousness. Meaning it's possible, not for righteousness sake, because you've just chosen to, walk, chosen to walk in unrighteousness, that you could also suffer. Meaning there is a suffering that comes to believers that is a result of continuous rebellion toward the Lord. It is corrective discipline. And that 
is not simply the natural consequences of sin. It is a discipline that God brings into our lives because of our continual rebellion to him, also for our good, in order to put us back in the right direction. And David, who wrote Psalm 38, is a perfect example of this. He is a man after God's own heart. He is the anointed king of Israel. There is no one in the Old Testament that knows intimacy with the Lord more than David does. Hours and hours and hours in solitude seeking the Lord. He longs for the Lord more than he longs for anyone else. One day he was on his roof and he saw a woman. He desired her in his heart. He then sent for her to be brought to him. When she was, he sinned against the Lord with her. He then tried to cover up that sin and as a result ended up killing her husband and then lied about it and deceived it. As a result, the Lord brought the corrective discipline. He experienced years, you could almost say to the rest of his life, corrective discipline because of the foolishness of his decisions. And there are multiple chapters in which he writes after that experience to which Psalm 38, I believe, is one of them. This is about the corrective discipline of the Lord. Now let's look together at Psalm 38. And I wanna read these verses to us. Look carefully and remember what I say. We not only need to see the words, we need to feel the weight of this text. Let, let the feeling of this come over you. It says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning for my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sign is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me and the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stands far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares and those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. Verse 13, but I am like a deaf man, I do not hear like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I'm ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity, I'm sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous and they are mighty and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Verse 21, do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Now I want you to notice in the midst of all of the suffering, David clearly acknowledges the reason he believes he's suffering. Look at verse three. It says, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones. Look, because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. 
David believes that there is a connection between his suffering and his sin. And he's right. As a believer, as someone who trusts the Lord and has sought the Lord, there are some consequences he's experiencing because of his sin. And look at the words he uses. He says in verse three, because of my sin. That is a word that means to fall short, that God has set a standard. We have not met that standard. And David says, I did that. I I failed to meet the expectations of the Lord. He then says, my iniquity in verse four. Iniquity is reference to more of an internal issue. It may not be seen externally, but David knows there was iniquity in his heart. He sinned against the Lord and it began here. Nobody else saw it first, it began here. And then I love this. It says, my wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. Now, I say I love that, not because his wounds are festering, but because I understand what David feels here. The word foolishness is a really important word here because apart from the sin and the iniquity, he simply says, I made a boneheaded, stupid move. I did something utterly foolish. I did a really dumb and a really stupid thing. Now, kids that are here today, I know that we don't say stupid. Stupid is not a good word to say. But when it comes to certain circumstances in our life, there are times in which we do just really dumb and stupid things. And just so you know that this is true from everyone around you, I want all the adults, if you've ever done a boneheaded, stupid, foolish move, can you just raise your hands right now? Kids, look around. Every one of you, if your parent is not raising their hand, they're a liar and there's no truth in them. It says, I got sin, I got iniquity, but, but I just, I chose the path of foolishness. I knew this wasn't right, but I did it anyway. And the result of my sin and my iniquity and my foolishness is that I'm suffering the consequences of my sin. Now listen to me. David is under the corrective discipline of the Lord. Now, I believe the reason we don't talk about this much is because this is really hard stuff. It's really hard for us to figure out how to take Romans 8, which we're gonna look at a lot in a minute, that God is for us and not against us. There is no condemnation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then think about the way in which the Lord disciplines us. It's hard to put those things together. And this is why Psalm 38 is so helpful. Psalm 38 gives us some help on how to process the discipline of the Lord. There are three truths that come out in Psalm 38 about the discipline of the Lord. I'm imploring you to write these down because you will need these in your life. And the first one is the most foundational. It is this, listen carefully. There is love in the discipline of the Lord. There is love in the discipline of the Lord. You say, well, well, pastor, we just read Psalm 38. I didn't see the word love one time. No, but it is all over this text when you see it in light of the rest of scripture. Look what it says in verse one. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Now, one of the things we've talked about a lot in the Psalms is sometimes David is communicating not what is actually true, but how he actually feels. That doesn't mean that everything in Psalm 38 is not true. This is the inspired and errant word of God. This is exactly what David wrote. What I'm telling you is this. David, like all of us in the midst of his suffering, says a lot of things to the Lord that aren't true. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you against me? Why have you withdrawn your hand from me? This is the way he feels. And what we say often in this church is if we as a church do not give people the freedom to say how they feel, even though it's not right, they will never turn the corner and understand what's right. Sometimes we just need to say what we feel, even if it's not true. 
It's part of the process. So David's just explaining how he feels, and here's how he feels. He feels as if the wrath and anger of God is coming against him. Is that true? No. And he's gonna see that in a minute. He's gonna walk through that process, but he feels as if the wrath of God is under him. And this is so helpful for us because almost every time we suffer, you know this is true, every time in which we feel the weight and the heaviness of the world around us or persecution, we immediately think, God, what have you done? Why are you against me? And we immediately begin to question God and our standing before God. And so David feels that way, but David is gonna come to the realization that that is not what's happening here at all, that God has promised us that there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. So this is not as a result of condemnation. This is coming out of a loving father who wants to do everything he can to correct us in our sin so that we might continue in the right trajectory of life. I think maybe the most helpful verse in that regard is in Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. Write that down, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. It says this, my son, do not despise the discipline of the Lord or be weary of his reproofs. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father in the son in whom he delights. I love that. Because when it says, if a father loves his child, you know what he's gonna do? He's gonna bring discipline. And if a father delights in his child, he just wants the best for his child. His child is the joy of his life. If that's true, that father is going to put discipline in the child's life. If you don't love a child, you will ignore their foolishness, you ignore their sin, and let them continue in that path without rebuking them. That is the opposite of love. A loving father disciplines a child for their good. What he's saying is the same thing that is quoted in Hebrews 12. Hebrews comes back and quotes this to say, listen, God is treating you as a son. He is a good and loving father. So don't be weary of that discipline. Don't question the motive. The motive is this. There is a God who loves you, who knows what is best for you and is reproving you and rebuking you in your sin for your good. So I have five children whom I love deeply. There is nothing I want more than their good. There is nothing I long for than for them to walk with Jesus. I, I think about this all of the time. My, one of my primary motives of walking in integrity and walking with the Lord and getting up early and spending time with God is because I want my children to be able to receive the overflow of that. And I know that if I go a day without walking with Jesus, they will notice it. And so I think about this a lot. And one of the principles of parenting that I think is most important is this. If you're a new parent or going to be someday, you might want to write this down. The primary goal of parenting is to remove foolishness and instill wisdom. That's it. We, we remove foolishness and we instill wisdom. And wisdom is the way of Christ and foolishness is the opposite way. Now, Proverbs 22 says this. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, right? Every child is born with just a bunch of foolishness. It's bound up here. So we, we gotta figure out how to get it out. Well, it says the rod of discipline removes it. So, so, so we have these children and they're all foolish because all of us are. And our responsibility as a parent is to remove foolishness and then instill wisdom. You say, well, how do you get the foolish out? Well, it says the rod of discipline removes it. So when Josiah looks at me and says, no, the issue is not that moment. The issue is that I know as a father 
that if he continues to say no and I continue to let him get away with it, I'm determining the trajectory of his life. And so what he's doing is he's now going in this way in which he is headed down a path in which he does not understand authority, which will destroy all of his relationships, particularly his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if he can constantly say no to me, he'll think he can constantly say no to everyone else, including teachers and law enforcement and Jesus. And so at that moment, because that's foolishness, my responsibility is to do everything I can to remove that foolishness. Why? Because I love him. And I see further down the road than he does. Now, in that moment, he does not understand that at all. He does not see that discipline as love, but I do. And my responsibility is not even to think that he's gonna fully understand that, but to do what is right, even if he doesn't understand it. How much more will our God who loves us deeply do everything he can to remove the foolishness from our heart, to discipline us when we sin in order to get us on the right trajectory of life? It all flows from the heart, a loving God whose motive is, listen, whose motive is always your good. You say, well, how do, I, how do I understand that in terms of Romans 8? God is for you in the discipline. He's for you. If he was against you, he would ignore that sin, but he does not do that. But there is always love in the discipline of the Lord. But here's the next truth. I want you to get this. There is pain in the discipline of the Lord. There is pain in the discipline of the Lord. This is most of Psalm 38. I would say verses three all the way through about verse 20 is about the pain of the discipline of the Lord. And if you were just to read it over and over, you would continue to feel the weight as if everything in his life is crumbling. There is spiritual pain. Look at verse two. Your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down on me. He feels the weight, the heaviness, the spiritual heaviness in his life. There is emotional pain. Look at verse four where it says, my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Have you ever felt the heavy burden of sin? Look at the other emotional pain. He says in verse five, my wounds sink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. He says in verse eight, I am feeble and crushed and I groan because of the tumult of my heart. So he feels this in his heart. He feels the weight in his heart. There's, there's something not sound and right in his heart. There is relational pain. Verse 11 is incredibly sad. It says this, my friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest of kin stand far off of me. So one of the consequences of his sin is even his family is withdrawn from him. And then his enemies rise up, verse 12. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak ruin of me and meditate treachery all day long. Verse 19, my foes are vigorous and they are mighty and many are those who hate me wrongfully. You cannot read the Old Testament without understanding one of the ways in which God gets the attention of his people when they are rebellious is by rising up people to come against them. But here, the friends, the family, the foes, everyone seems to withdrawn with him, which is a consequence of his sin. And then look at the physical pain. Look at verse three. There is no soundness in my flesh. Nothing in my flesh feels good because of my indignation. There's no health in my bones. 
Verses five through eight, my wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and all the day I go on mourning. Listen to verses seven and eight. My sides are filled with burning. There is no soundness in my flesh. Twice he says that, that I just don't feel well. Something's wrong. There's no health in my body. I'm feeble and crushed and I groan because of the issues of my heart. And one of the reasons is, is because you cannot separate the anxiety of the heart and the physical body. That if you're being weighed down by sin and you feel it in your heart, you feel it in your soul, it will manifest itself physically. No question, every time. There are tons of people who have physical problems because of bitterness and unconfessed sin. It's just a reality, it eats at you. And he's experiencing that, that that which started inside is now coming out. Now listen, not all sickness in your life is a result of some sin that you committed. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He had something that was given to him for instruction. It wasn't corrective, it was instructive. I'm doing this for you because you're doing well. I gave you this vision. I don't want you to boast about it. So I've given you something to keep you humble. Job's physical suffering was not the consequence of some sin that God, that he, that God saw that he had committed. It was instructive suffering. But listen to this. There is some sickness that is corrective discipline. There is some people whose body is wasting away who are suffering incredible sickness because there's unconfessed sin in their life. And Hebrews 12, 11 says it. It says, all discipline seems painful at the moment, but it yields the fruit of harvest if you're trained by it. So as God applies that discipline, as you receive it and are trained by it, listen to this. Here's the grace and mercy of God. It ends up producing righteousness. Your dumbest decision can produce incredible righteousness if you're trained by it. That's a really good place for an amen. Your dumbest decision can produce the fruit of righteousness if you're trained by the discipline of the Lord. Incredible mercy of God. That leads us to the third truth. There is love, there is pain, and listen, there is hope in the discipline of the Lord. Psalm 38 is filled with incredible hope. The first sign I see is in verse nine when he says, oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sign is not hidden from you. So at the beginning, and this is how these Psalms work, God, you've forsaken me. Your wrath is on me. You're against me. And then he says, God, now I know that you're near me. I I know that you know what's going on. I know that you're not aloof from me or hiding from me, he says in verse nine. And then he says this in verse verse 15, Lord, for you, I, I wait. You know that word, I wait. And some of you are translated like this. It means I hope. It means, God, I, I, I'm, I'm standing here anticipating that you're gonna do something good, that something good, something merciful, something gracious is gonna come out of this because I know that what I did was wrong and I know that I'm experiencing the consequences of that. I also know you're a gracious and merciful God and I'm waiting for something good to come out of this. He has this hope. I'll tell you another example of hope is that God is stirring in his heart and convicting him of sin. Look at verse 18. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. You don't get that kind of conviction without the very spirit of God. There's conviction in my heart. I'm sorry. I'm I'm confessing my sin before you. And the greatest hope in verses 21 and 22, remember, he almost always resolves this. God, I feel you're against me. My wrath, your wrath is on me. And look at 21 and 22. Don't forsake me, O Lord the covenant-keeping God 
who has made a promise to not forsake me. Oh my God, the sovereign one, the ruler of heaven and earth, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, oh Lord, my salvation. You are the one who has saved me. I am who I am because of you. And so at the end, even though he feels as if he's receiving the wrath of God, his hope is I am a part of the covenant people of God. He will not leave me or forsake me. I am his. He is Lord God and he is my savior. And look at how personal it is. Oh my God, oh Lord, my salvation. He knows that God is with him in these things. And what I love the most is that when I come to the end of Psalm 38, you begin to realize that the discipline is working. He sinned. He was unrepentant. At first, he lied. He tried to deceive and tried to hide it. God exposed him. God applies discipline, and what happens at the end? Now he's just longing for the presence of the Lord. He's longing for the presence. It's working. God has applied discipline to bring him back, and that's exactly how it ends, that the Lord is bringing him back through the discipline. Now listen to this. When it comes to the discipline of the Lord, I think the question that plagues us the most is this one. Well, how do I know if it's corrective or instructive? God, what if I'm suffering because of some sin and and I don't know what it is and you're not gonna relent until I acknowledge it and confess it and I know particularly those who have more of a sensitive conscience can think that God is against me and there's something and I don't know it or what if this is just instructed? How do you know the difference? Let me give you a little help in that. The first help is this. I believe without question that if you are under the corrective discipline of the Lord, you will know why. God will make that evident. Listen, if we're always under the corrective discipline of the Lord, every time we sin, we're always under the corrective discipline of the Lord. Even my best things that I do have probably some sinful motive behind them. Like there's all kinds of iniquity in our hearts. But listen to this. David knew in this moment he was suffering because of that sin. He knew it. And so it is that God is not gonna hide that from you. Here's what I believe. The corrective discipline of the Lord is applied to those who have consistently rejected the prompting of the Holy Spirit in an area of sin and time after time after time again, ignoring the gentle whisper or the grieving of the Holy Spirit have then continued to walk in their disobedience and now are receiving the results of being obstinate and rebellious towards the Lord. So when that comes, you will know. And some of you are really either there or close to being there. There is some sin in your life, something you're hiding in your life. You receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You ignore that conviction. You continue to walk in rebellion. The thought of confessing that to the Lord or someone else is terrifying. But I assure you, you want to respond at the moment the Holy Spirit convicts. Because you do not want to continue to be defiant and reject him like a defiant, rebellious child and then receive that kind of corrective discipline from the Lord. So I believe that when you are experiencing that, you will know that and the Lord will make it clear. So, so what that also means is I don't think you have to always think, well, God, is it something I don't know about and am I suffering? No, I don't think that's, I don't think that's how the Lord works. The next help for you is this, and, and this is going to sound strange, but listen to me. In some ways, it doesn't matter whether it's corrective or instructive. And the reason is this. Because in both of them, God's motive is the same and your response is the same. 
In all of the discipline of the Lord, God's motive is for your good, to lead you in the path of righteousness, to bring you in the right direction, and your response is always the same. You get humble before the Lord, you certainly do acknowledge your sin, but then you draw near to him. What is David doing? He's drawing near to the Lord. He's crying out to the Lord. He's saying, Lord, I am hoping in you. I want you. I'm drawing near to you. That's always the response. The response is the same. No matter the sickness, let's say you, you get a terrible diagnosis this week. Well, could it be that's corrective? It could be if there's some constant defiance in your life and open rebellion for, for a long period of time, I believe it could be most likely for many of you. It would be the instructive discipline of the Lord. Is the Lord saying, I love you and I wanna continue to mold you into my image and so I'm gonna put this circumstance in your life to make you depend more upon me. No matter what it is, your response is the same. Lord, I hope in you and I'm drawing near to you. When the prodigal son ended up in a pit, that wasn't just the natural consequences of sin. God put him in a pit so that he would wake up and see the foolishness of his action and run home. But when Job experienced his suffering, that was also the Lord's doing. You know, have you considered my servant Job? That was not corrective, that was instructive. And at the end of the book of Job, Job says this. He said, I had heard with my ear of you, but now I see you with my eye. In other words, it wasn't until all of that suffering that Job really got to know intimacy with the Lord. In every single bit of discipline, listen, God's motive is your good. And this is where every time we just cling to Romans 8. Okay, we just, we cling to Romans 8, which starts by telling us if you're in Christ Jesus, if you had trusted Jesus as the Savior, Lord of your life, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You may feel as if the wrath of God is against you. It is not, it cannot be because Jesus absorbed it on the cross. Okay, he is also for you, not against you, Romans 8. It also tells us that the one he justifies, he will sanctify, and the one he sanctifies, he will glorify. God is doing his work in you, and the pathway to glory always includes some suffering. And it will end by reminding you that there is nothing in heaven or on earth that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God's motive is always love and your good. And if sin is always for your bad, if sin is always that which is plaguing you and leading you in the wrong direction, how good is it of God to, in the moment in which we sin, correct us and get us on the right path that is always for our good? This is coming from a good and right and gracious God who is treating you like a child. Now here's how we're gonna conclude our time together. We're gonna conclude by taking communion. And the reason is this. Just listen to me for, for just another minute. Just listen. First of all, because communion is a very important reminder. It is a reminder of the fact as we take the bread and we take the juice that the body of Jesus was broken and his blood was shed. And listen, Psalm 38 could be written about Jesus. Don't pack up yet. Don't grab your communion stuff. Look at me. The Jesus who had never sinned once experienced the emotional, the physical, the spiritual, and relational pain that all belong to us because of our sin. Every bit of it was heaped upon Jesus in one moment. His friends and his loved ones forsook him. He experienced incredible physical pain. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And his heart was broken. He did all of that so that we didn't have to for all of eternity. 
So all of that, which we should experience for all of eternity, which is all because of our sin, was put upon Jesus Christ and his body was broken and his blood was shed so that he might get the consequences of my sin and I might receive his righteousness. And so we can stand confident that Romans 8 is true about us because we know Jesus Christ. So it is a reminder that if you have trusted Christ alone as the payment for your sins, you have made him the Lord and Savior of your life, then you are reminded by these physical, visible elements that God is for me in all of the suffering of this life. But communion is also a very important warning because 1 Corinthians 11 says that there are those in the Corinthian church who were sick and even dying because they were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. They had an unconfessed sin, and like Ananias and Sapphira, they stood before the people and acted as if everything was fine. They were lying. They were being hypocrites. And 1 Corinthians 11 says that before you take communion, you examine yourself. Is there unconfessed rebellion and sin? It is a dangerous thing to fall in the corrective discipline of the Lord by taking communion in an unworthy manner. So we stop and we say, Lord, I, I confess this, I turn from this, I don't want this to be a part of my life. And we not only confess it to the Lord, we then ultimately confess it to whomever we've sinned against. But it's also important because it is a picture of the hope that we have in Christ. God has given us visible elements to point us to the hope that we have in this life and the next. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.